Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to talk about musculoskeletal anatomy and disorders that can occur that we would see in some of the patients that we deal with. The ones that we want to focus on today are muscular dystrophy, myasthenia gravis, and Lambert-Eaton, as well as familial periodic paralysis. There's a lot of other ones that we can discuss, but we feel like these are some of the more important ones that we want to go over today. For the most part, we want to stay with the anatomy on how an action potential is brought down the neuron to the synapse, sends a signal across to the muscle, and how the muscle depolarizes, and what issues that can develop in that anatomy with these different disorders and how that's going to affect our anesthesia treatment. The neuromuscular junction is what we're really going to be talking about today. And this will pull a little bit from the ANS discussion and also from the pain pathway discussion when we're talking about the different receptors and also the action potential going down the axon. So with this pathway, if you remember your cross-section of your spinal cord, you have the um, basically H shape that is the gray matter there. And in the ventral horn is going to be the cell bodies for your somatic nervous system. So this is going to send out action potentials down the myelinated alpha motor neuron to the neuromuscular junction. So what that'll do at the nerve terminal is it's going to open these voltage-gated calcium channels. What this does is cause an influx of calcium into the terminal, and calcium is going to act like a cross bridge between these proteins on the neuron terminal and these vesicles that are housing acetylcholine. So the calcium will, in essence, bridge the gap between these vesicles and the lining of the terminal, and this will allow the vesicles to fuse with the lining of the terminal and release the contents of acetylcholine into the neuromuscular junction. From there, they will go across the neuromuscular junction and act on the receptors on the postsynaptic side. So as the acetylcholine gets released from the terminal of the neuron, a couple things happen. It goes across and it binds to nicotinic receptors on the cell membrane of the muscle. These nicotinic receptors are located in a greater quantity at an area called the motor end plate. And when the nicotinic receptor is bound by the acetylcholine, it's going to cause sodium to rush into the cell because it's a channel protein, which allows ions to freely cross through. So sodium is going to rush in, which also allows potassium to rush out. And this causes a depolarization in the muscle cell. This depolarization will run across the membrane of the muscle cell away from this motor implant down the cell membrane until it reaches a point called the T-tubule. What the T-tubule is, is basically an indent where the membrane of the cell has a, a loop and it dips down into the center of the cell and back out and then continues along the outside. And what this allows for is the depolarization to run down into the center of the cell and activate a DHP receptor. This DHP receptor is connected on the inside of the cell to a reanidine receptor. And what reanidine receptors are, are gated receptors on the end of the sarcoplastic reticulum. And the sarcoplastic reticulum is what houses the intercellular calcium levels. So this calcium is stored in the sarcoplasmic reticulum and not allowed to freely go throughout the cell. Once the depolarization comes down the T-tubule, it causes the DHP receptor to move. 
which is connected to that ranadine receptor and causes the ranadine to open up and allows calcium to rush out into the cell. So once the calcium is released from the sarcoplasmic reticulum into the inside of the cell, it'll bind to troponin. If you remember from your phys classes, you have the diagram of the actin and the myosin and the cross bridges that can form. We're not going to go into the details of that today, but this calcium that's released from the sarcoplasmic reticulum will come and bind to troponin on these cross bridges and allow the contraction to occur. The one thing we do want to talk about with the actin and myosin is that once that cross bridge has occurred and contraction occurs, the only way to release it is for the presence of ATP to be there. And once that ATP binds, it is allowed to release that contraction. And that'll come into play here when we talk about some of these diseases. But just remember, once calcium is present, that's what signals the start of this contraction. And as long as calcium is there, we will continue to have contraction. The way to get rid of the calcium is by the circuit pumps that basically use ATP to actively pump calcium back up into the sarcoplasmic reticulum and away from these fibers that cause the contraction. So just to recap where we've gone so far, you have from the ventral root of the spinal cord, you have an action potential sent down the alpha motor neuron, depolarizes the neuron terminal, which causes an influx of calcium. This signals the release of acetylcholine from the vesicles that fuse with the membrane. Those go across the neuromuscular junction. They will attach to the nicotinic receptors on the post-junctional side. From there, the depolarization will cause the DHP receptor in these T-tubules to open the rionidine receptor, which allows the calcium to exit the sarcoplasmic reticulum, which causes your cross-bridge formation and then causes your muscle contraction. So we, we understand the pathway from beginning to end, albeit this is a simple explanation of it. But we want to go back and discuss a little more clearly when we talk about the nicotinic receptor, the acetylcholine receptor on the postsynaptic side of the neuromuscular junction. When we discuss neuromuscular blocking agents, it's important that we understand what this receptor looks like. And also, as we discuss some of the diseases later, it'll be important to understand these receptors in terms of the meds that we give, whether this will cause an increased reaction, if it will cause a limited reaction. And so let's back up and talk about these receptors. These are made up of five proteins. The junctional receptor will have two alphas, a beta, a delta, and an epsilon unit. You'll hear the terms denervated, extrajunctional, or immature acetylcholine receptors. In these extrajunctional, you will replace the epsilon for a gamma subunit. This is normal in development, but usually by age two, this is gone and you just have your junctional receptor, which has the epsilon unit, not the gamma unit. So it'd be the two alphas, beta, delta, and the epsilon unit. It's important to note with these that in fetus development, there's not going to be that innervation from the axon coming down and stimulating these nicotinic receptors. And that's why you have these immature nicotinic receptors. So when we get into these disease processes that we're going to talk about where there's a lack of innervation occurring, these muscle cells will result back to their immature form and start developing these extrajunctional receptors that you usually see in the fetus population when there's no innervation. So we understand that these have five proteins that make this receptor, two alpha units. And these are 
especially important when you discuss the activation of these receptors. And so usually when you have this whole process that we just discussed, you have acetylcholine across the neuromuscular junction. So both of these alpha subunits is where the acetylcholine will bind. And this allows for sodium and calcium to go into the cell and potassium to come out of the cell. This is important because when we talk about neuromuscular blockers, this is one of the places that these will have an effect. When you have your depolarizing muscle relaxants, these will bind to both alpha subunits and act similarly to the acetylcholine, which again, we're not going to get into that too much today, but it's going to cause depolarization and then will eventually allow for the muscle blockade. The CRNA team at Memorial Health is growing. Our team performs more than 30,000 surgeries annually and offers a variety of cases from general, OB, GI, ortho, cardiac, vascular, and more. Memorial has a 24-7 OR with flexible scheduling in 8, 10, or 12-hour shift options. Our CRNAs receive PTO and sick time alongside competitive salaries, relocation assistance, and a sign-on bonus of up to $250,000. We hire CRNAs as early as their second year in school and can offer financial assistance to complete your program. Learn for yourself why Memorial means more. Text CRNA to 217-588-5627 to speak with a recruiter. The first disorder disease we want to talk about with this process is myasthenia gravis. Myasthenia gravis, it's a chronic autoimmune disorder that is characterized by these altered IgG antibodies that are circulating in the patient. And what these antibodies do is they go and block and deactivate the nicotinic receptors on the muscle cell. So based on the anatomy that we've talked about so far, if we are blocking these receptors, we're not going to be able to send acetylcholine to bind to those receptors to then cause the depolarization of the muscle cell. As a result, you can have upwards of 80% of these functional nicotinic receptors blocked or lost, which will result in weakness and fatigue in these patients in terms of these voluntary muscles. So it makes sense that if we are blocking the depolarization, then the muscle is going to be unable to contract and we're going to have weakness. So the big thing with these patients is the voluntary muscles from repetitive use are going to be weakened. One of the big muscle groups that we are concerned about from the anesthesia standpoint is anything to do with the respiratory side of things. So these patients will have bulbar muscle weakness, which will weaken their pharyngeal and laryngeal muscles. This will result in dysphagia and a difficulty in the patients clearing their secretions, which puts them more at risk of developing pneumonia. We can have aspiration risk, uh, around our anesthetics that we give, and just a difficulty from a respiratory standpoint. So since we have limited acetylcholine receptors in the neuromuscular junction, a way that we can fix that, if we can't just create new receptors, a way that we can treat this is just by hopefully having more acetylcholine available to bind to those receptors. So the treatment for this is to give a cholinesterase inhibitor, which will increase the amount or the concentration of acetylcholine in the neuromuscular junction. So we're not creating more acetylcholine necessarily. We're not creating more receptors. We're just increasing the likelihood that acetylcholine will be in the neuromuscular junction to bind to a, an available receptor since these receptors are going to be limited. The main ones that you'll see is pyridostigmine, 
and neostigmine. And dosing for these is tricky because as you remember from the ANS discussion, if you have a more acetylcholine, neuromuscular junction is not the only place where acetylcholine is going to have effects. So we have this in your vestibular apparatus with your nausea and vomiting pathway. You have muscarinic innervation in your heart and your respiratory system. And so when you are dosing these cholinesterase inhibitors, where it's not just a specific therapy to the neuromuscular junction, it will have implications for other body systems as well. So if you have too much of the cholinesterase inhibitor, you'll have too much acetylcholine. And what this is called is a cholinergic crisis. So what are things we can do to treat that? Well, you can give a anticholinergic such as atropine, robinol to combat the effects of the increased acetylcholine. And one way we can test for if we're giving too much or too little, let's say the patient comes in and their muscles are very fatigued. Well, we have one of two things that are happening. Either A, they're in a myasthenia crisis, which is where too, too many of those receptors are getting blocked by the IgG antibodies, and we're not getting enough acetylcholine to bind to those receptors, so we're weak. Or on the flip side, we're giving too much anticholinesterase, such as peridostigmine, and we're going into cholinergic crisis, which is where we just have too much acetylcholine that are binding throughout the body and causing side effects as well and weakness. So one of the ways we can test for which side of the spectrum we're on is to do what's called a tensilon test. What a tensilon test is, is to give another anticholinesterase. This time we give edrophonium and we give one to two milligrams IV of this drug. What this will do is because this works the same way as pyridostigmine would work, if the patient is in a myasthenia crisis, which is where they're not getting enough acetylcholine to bind to the nicotinic receptor, this medication should theoretically help by extending the lifespan of this acetylcholine in the synapse which would increase the likelihood of it binding to those receptors and improve the weakness that the patient is experiencing. However, if the patient is in cholinergic crisis, meaning we have too much acetylcholine, then this will worsen the, the symptoms of the patient because we are increasing acetylcholine even more so. So this tensilon test is used to quickly figure out if the patient is in a myasthenia crisis or a cholinergic crisis. Perfect. So let's think about other things or other therapies that would be involved. Since this is an IgG-mediated disease, these patients are going to be therapeutically immunosuppressed. The other thing that you want to think about is when you are giving a neuromuscular blockade. So if you have less acetylcholine receptors, if you have less nicotinic receptors on the post-junctional side that are available for acetylcholine to bind to, well, what is that going to mean for our neuromuscular blocking agents? If you give a non-depolarizing neuromuscular block, it will have increased potency in these patients because you're only needing to block a limited number of these receptors since some of them are already being blocked by the IgG antibodies. If you give a depolarizing medication such as succinylcholine, you will have to give more of this. If you recall how depolarizing medications work, the depolarizing agent will cause continuous depolarization until the muscle is fatigued and can no longer contract. And so in that instance, you have limited number of these receptors where this action is going to take place. And so you will need to give more 
of succinylcholine in patients with myasthenia gravis to achieve your desired effect. So that will have implications for your neuromuscular blocker. The other thing you can do with these patients is plasma freeze them prior to surgery. What this will do is basically reduce the number of antibodies that are available. And this is just a temporary acute fix to hopefully optimize the patient before surgery. So when you're deciding between a regional and a general anesthesia plan for myasthenia gravis patients, if you do regional and you use a local anesthetic, you want to make sure to use amide local anesthetics and not esters. If you remember from our local anesthesia talk, the ester group of local anesthetics are broken down by plasma cholinesterases. And these patients are going to be on anticholinesterase medications. So for this reason, if you give local anesthetics that are from the ester group, it's going to last longer because the, they're going to be less cholinesterase enzymes floating around to break down the medication. So you want to use the amide local anesthetics. The next one we want to talk about is Lambert-Eaton syndrome. This mirrors very closely with the myasthenia gravis. The mechanism of this disease is different, however. If you remember, myasthenia gravis is where the IgG is blocking the nicotinic receptors on the postsynaptic side of the neuromuscular junction. Lambert-Eaton is where you have IgG antibodies destroying the voltage-gated calcium channels on the presynaptic terminal. So like we talked about with the anatomy, the calcium is important to create this cross bridge, which allows the vesicles to release acetylcholine. So without calcium coming in, we will have no acetylcholine release, and then it'll look very similar to myasthenia gravis with the muscle weakness. It's important to note that this looks a little bit differently where myasthenia gravis gets weaker throughout the day. And with exercise, Lambert Eaton actually improves throughout the day. Uh, with their muscle strength. What you will see for treatment with these patients is 3,4-diaminopyridine, and you often see that as 3,4-DAP-DAP. And basically what that does is it blocks the potassium channels. That allows calcium channels to stay open longer, which since we're dealing with fewer calcium channels is very important to allow more calcium to come into the terminal therefore releasing the acetylcholine. This is often associated with small cell lung carcinoma. It's important to know that with these patients, they're going to be sensitive to both succinylcholine and non-depolarizing. So depolarizing and non-depolarizing muscle relaxants. Another disease process we want to talk about is familial periodic paralysis. It's more acute episodes of weakness in the skeletal muscle, and it's due to change in the serum potassium concentration. So there's two sides of this. It can either be caused by hypokalemia or hyperkalemia. So the difference in the pathophys is that when you have a hypokalemic serum level, what this causes is the calcium channel does not operate as properly. And so we're not going to have this cascade of depolarization through the process that we talked about. And you're going to have paralysis because the muscle is going to be unable to contract. Whereas when you have hyperkalemia, this will cause alterations with the sodium channel. And again, same thing, you're not going to be able to have the depolarization occur through the anatomy we talked about, and you're going to have paralysis. So it's important to note when you have the paralysis, you need to check which side of the spectrum we're on here. Are we hypokalemic or are we hyperkalemic? Because that's going to affect how we treat these patients. So the treatment of this and what drugs you will give or refrain from giving depends on if we're in the hypokalemic or the hyperkalemic state. So if you're in the hypokalemic state, you can... Treat it by obviously giving potassium either IV or orally. And then in terms of our anesthetic considerations, we don't want to do anything that would decrease our potassium even further. So both your non-depolarizing and your depolarizing 
muscular blockers are safe here because succinylcholine, when it binds to the nicotinic receptor, it allows sodium to rush in, as Tanner was saying earlier, but it also allows potassium to rush out, which will increase our serum level of potassium. So in the hyperkalemic paralysis, we don't want to give succinylcholine for the reason that it's going to further increase our potassium, but we are still safe to give our non-depolarizers. And then again, in the hyperkalemic paralysis, we just want to refrain from doing anything that's going to increase your potassium even further. So we can treat it just how you would. If you have a renal failure patient that has elevated potassium levels, you can give insulin and dextrose to try to decrease it. Uh, just get that potassium back down and you should see the paralysis reverse itself. So again, in treating this, it's, it's more an acute episode just simply based on the alteration in the serum potassium level. It's just important to see which side of the spectrum you're on and treat it appropriately from there. So the last one that we want to talk about today is muscular dystrophy. Two main categories here is Duchenne's muscular dystrophy and also Becker muscular dystrophy. And the pathophysiology here is with the protein dystrophin. So dystrophin is going to basically anchor the actin and myosin to the cell membrane. When you don't have this, so in Duchenne's, you have the absence of this dystrophin, whereas in Becker's, you just have a decreased amount of the dystrophin. What it's going to do is cause holes in the cell membrane. So you'll have calcium that's leaking in, you'll have potassium leaking out, and this will cause an increase in your serum potassium, can have cardiac implications. And then also, as you have muscle breakdown, you will have release of myoglobin, and creatinine and those types of things that will also be able to be seen in your blood. This is uh, often associated with malignant hyperthermia. It's important to know that these are not related. And what Tanner means by that is we're going to see a lot of the same symptoms that we see in malignant hyperthermia. So with the holes in the cell membrane, you have the calcium that it's going to continually rush into the cell and cause that contraction. And we're not going to be able to keep up from an ATP standpoint with the continual contraction. And so we're going to start doing anaerobic respiration and have an elevated entitled CO2 level. And we're going to have the same kind of effects that you would see in the malignant hyperthermia, but the disease pop process is completely different than malignant hyperthermia. With the myoglobin that's leaking out of the cell, it can cause some kidney injury. So that's something to, to note with these patients is they may have some decreased kidney function. So keep that in mind when you're considering different drugs to give. In terms of the potassium being higher, it'll cause some cardiac complications. It can often be seen with some increased R-wave amplitude and deep Q waves. This also decreases your gastric motility. So keep in mind, if you have gastric hypomotility, these patients are more at risk of having aspiration occur. So we want to do a rapid sequence induction with these patients and don't give depolarizing agents such as succinylcholine or volatile anesthetics because both of these will increase the risk of having these effects that we see with malignant hyperthermia, such as the elevated potassium levels and the increase in the myoglobin being brought out of the cell, et cetera. Another reason we don't want to give sucks in these patients, uh, patients with muscular dystrophy develop a lot more of these extra junctional receptors that we talked about at the beginning of our talk. So when you give sucks, it's going to depolarize more receptors because there's more receptors there. And again, it's just going to further exacerbate the issue of that continual calcium influx and contraction of this muscle with an increase in that potassium leaking out of the cell. So that's one of the reasons that we don't want to give sucks. 
And because we don't want to give bottle anesthetics, we need to ensure that the machine is completely cleaned out so there's no residual bottle anesthetics left from our previous case. So what this entails is completely disconnecting the vaporizers from the machine, using a high fresh gas flow running through the machine for at least 30 minutes prior to the next procedure, just doing anything and everything that we can to make sure there are no residual bottle anesthetics left in our machine when these, when these patients come into the OR. Great. Well, I think that is a brief summary of the neuromuscular junction and the diseases that will have an effect on that neuromuscular junction. Hope this was helpful and just a brief recap of things that we need to consider as we provide our anesthesia care. Mm-hmm.